The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. second coming of Christ, and that is the subject we look at today as we are continuing to progress through Luke's gospel in chapter 12. Jesus is going to introduce something that the disciples couldn't have fully understood at the time he said it because they didn't even understand the cross or the resurrection yet. But in the means of several parables actually layered on each other in this passage, and I'm not going to deal with every aspect or detail, he begins to set the stage for a great triumphant event at the end of time, well beyond his time on earth or even the apostles' time on earth. Listen today. These are Jesus' own words as he's teaching. Luke 12, beginning at verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may... Open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming... He would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. For truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. The one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is God's holy word. I wonder if there's a child ever having grown up among us or anyone who's an adult today who did not, as a child, play the game hide-and-go-seek. I'd ask for a show of hands, but I don't think I'd see any hands of someone who never saw or never played hide-and-go-seek. You know how it works. Someone is selected to be it. 
Did you ever stop and think why they call the person it? I never figured that one out. But the person who is it has to count loudly, hopefully closing their eyes, you know, not peeking, while everybody else scatters into hiding places. I have a two-year-old grandson who right now just loves hide and go seek. If you tell him it's going to be played, he starts to dance around and giggle, and he just is full of anticipation for this game. And while the person is counting, this little grandson, here's what he does. He stands in the middle of the room, giggling and laughing, and he's all excited. He does not run and hide. He hasn't figured the game out yet. He hides in plain sight, and then when it says, ready or not, here I come, of course he's the first person to be found. And Theo thinks he won the game because he was the first one to be found. He'll figure it out sometime, but he hasn't yet. Ready or not, here I come. Going to serious things. That's almost exactly what Jesus Christ was saying in our text of Scripture today. He's saying that there will be a conclusion to human history as we know it. A day when he will appear. And other passages detail for us the wonders of that appearing in a supernatural way when he will come whether humanity is ready for him or not. I wonder if you knew that every single New Testament book except three minor ones, well, Galatians isn't a minor book, but Second and Third John are fairly minor letters, and Galatians are the only three New Testament books that do not mention in some rather prominent way the return of Christ. It's a subject that's all over the, the Scriptures. And it's a subject that, interestingly, draws a lot of mixed passions from people, from some a kind of hysteria or confusion, from other people almost a, a mockery of what they think is a myth or a, a near silly part of our faith, from other people just, just doubt or maybe even indifference. But the Bible says, just as Jesus once appeared on earth as the virgin-born son of a young woman in a miraculous way, and yet off in a corner where most didn't notice it, he's going to come by another supernatural means, visibly, somehow, we can't describe it, visibly so that the whole world will see this wonder all at once. Just think of some of the descriptions we have. Acts chapter 1, at the ascension of Christ, we read an angel saying, this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven shall come in a like manner as you see him go. In other words, miraculously, as he was removed from you, he will come back to you. First Thessalonians 4 pictures the very noisy, public, enormous, tremendous event of of the shout of the archangel and the trumpet call and so on. When the dead in Christ rise, amazing. Acts 17 has Paul say, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he proved this by raising him from the dead. So here in Luke 12, we have Jesus telling some parables. There are actually several of them layered one upon another here. If you notice, it wasn't all just one parable. And he is telling this to people who, as I said, aren't even clear about his death yet, let alone his resurrection, let alone his return. 
This would be something, of course, that they would only understand later on. But we are told here that for all who doubt in the lordship of Christ, all who are captivated by a totally materialistic-oriented worldview, those who in the previous passage we looked at two weeks ago are, are worried and consumed by all the cares of this world and, and have no other world in mind, the second coming to them is a myth or a joke. And when it comes, when it is an event, they will greet it, they will see it with terror and with irrevocable loss. And yet the scripture says that the believer who trusts in Christ and hopes for this thing, fantastic as it seems, will greet it when it comes with joy and will say, now, here at last, is the completion of everything I've ever hoped for. The scripture closes, if you remember the last chapter of Revelation on the cry, come, Lord Jesus, that special word, Maranatha, come, Lord is the closing word of the Scripture. Now, we admit as Christians that we have difficulty holding on to this as an everyday kind of hope. If I did ask for a show of hands and said, how many actually consciously woke up this morning and the, among the first things you said to yourself was, maybe this will be the day Christ will come. Now, you here we are at a conservative, Bible-centered, evangelical fellowship. You'd think there would be a lot of you. I confess it wasn't my first thought this morning, and I'm preaching on the subject. We don't hold this in the very front of our hopes, do we? It's hard to hold on to it. Let's consider a few things about it. First, about those who receive it, then those who don't receive it, and then a special promise that we find in this text. The first is Jesus' teaching this, that expectation for a returning master will find some disciples ready for him. Doesn't he say this? And yet he says, you're going to be ready even though it happens at an unexpected time. The unexpected hour is emphasized. First in the the householder who's going to come back from the wedding feast, you don't know whether he's going to get there at 10.30 p.m. or midnight or, or three in the morning. But he employs servants who he expects to have ready to greet him. And then later in the one who goes away for a long time, for many months perhaps, and and leaves somebody in charge, and, and he comes back on an unexpected day. The point is, nobody knows the return. Our text says it here very clearly in verse 40. You must be ready for the sun is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is reinforced by many other texts of Scripture. Matthew 24, 36, no man knows the day or the hour. The angels in heaven don't know it. Christ the Son doesn't know it. Only the Father knows it, Jesus said on that other occasion. 2 Peter 3, 10 says the day of the Lord comes like a thief, unexpected. My wife and I were robbed once many years ago while I was in seminary. And boy, I'll tell you, they didn't send an announcement saying, behold, be home and defend yourself on this day because the guy's going to break through your, the lock in your door and go through your things. He just did it, and we found out afterwards. Why is it that prophecy devotees cannot remember this Bible emphasis? It's so clear. You're going to be surprised. Didn't we have a fair amount of hysteria about 12 years ago now in 1999 as we were approaching 
2000, the Y2K scare, you know, all the computers were going to stop. Society was going to break down completely. Maybe Christ was going to come. I would surprise you with the name, and I'm not going to tell you the name, of a Reformed scholar of considerable renown who moved to a cabin in a rural area and stocked his cabin with a generator and lots of food and everything else because he was sure society was going to enter a major breakdown on New Year's Day of 2000. Well, Jesus said, we're going to be surprised. It's not going to come by a calendar prediction. But there's a big difference, let me tell you, between being surprised and being shocked and stunned and astounded. For he said the unbeliever is the one who will be absolutely astounded. He never has taken this thing seriously. In fact, if he ever did hear it, well, you, I mean, you see the folks that, that comment on Mr. Camping's predictions here this past year. The, the journalists love it. You know, the little snide remarks that all the newscasters made in talk. Oh, oh the world's going to end tomorrow. <laughs> what a joke. I saw that all over the place when Camping told us when the world was going to end twice this year. Why doesn't Camping know better? Why doesn't he understand what his scripture says? The believer is going to be surprised, but the unbeliever is going to be absolutely astounded by it. But the main emphasis falls not so much on that. Once he's told us that, it falls rather on what are we to do meanwhile? How are we to live? And he uses images here, especially in verse 35, staying dressed for action, keeping lamps burning, and be doing the things your master would expect you to be doing. Your ordinary duty, both in physical life, in your career, in your family service, as well as your spiritual duty of worship and of prayer and of knowing the word of God. Be doing these things. Be dressed. Have your lamp lit. Be ready to act and fulfill the things just as if someone told you, Christ will come, whatever, four o'clock this afternoon. What would you be doing if you actually knew he was coming at four o'clock this afternoon? Whatever that is, do it now. Because it's your duty now. Not wearing a white robe out on the mountain or something, having a prayer service waiting for him. Do your duty as a Christian disciple. Bear witness. Be a great parent. Do your work with all your energy as unto the Lord. Martin Luther had so many colorful ways of responding to things. And once somebody asked him, Dr. Luther, if you knew Christ would return in two days, what would you do? And Luther said, well, on the first day, I would go into my garden and plant a tree. And then on the second day, I would go into the church and preach my heart out in the name of Christ. Now, what a strange answer. What was Luther trying to say? I believe he was trying to get people's attention to say, because you say tree, why would you plant a tree if the world is going to come to a close? Luther was saying, I would be responsible. I would live my life as God has called me to live it. Of course, I would preach, but I plant a tree too. I would live the way God has called me to live as his servant. Jesus says it here, keep your lamps burning. There's the idea of our being light bearers in the world. 1 Thessalonians 5 has Paul say, 
to Christians, you are not in darkness so that this day, here it is, the day he's talking about, should surprise you like a thief. You are the sons of light and sons of the day, he says. So let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be alert and self-controlled. In other words, we live in a world that's very dark. People can't look beyond the ground at their feet, let alone at, at great future events. They're stumbling around. They're, they're, they're like drunks. They don't know how to live or where to go or what to do. But the scripture says Christ has given you the light of truth from God. You have the marvelous light of the gospel. You have some idea what God is doing in time and history and in his providence. We are the light bearers of God's truth. We have his word, which is called a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We know how to live wisely and in alert and self-controlled ways, not like people who are in a spiritual stupor of ignorance. We are lighthouse keepers. The believer's agenda is to be doing with all our hearts as unto Christ whatever we would rush to do if we knew that this was the last hour that we were going to be alive. Well, that's the side for a believer, and more could be said, but let's turn to the part for an unbeliever, especially verses 41 to 48 here, which tell of a solemn judgment on those not ready for the Lord's return. Some people are going to fail to be faithful to their expected service, something you had every right to expect because they had heard the gospel, they'd been exposed to the truth, maybe they had even professed it. But Christ comes, they're utterly shocked, and Jesus, this is Jesus saying this, that they will be cut in pieces. That sounds extremely severe, doesn't it? But isn't he talking about a real hell of rejection for those who scorn the truth of God when it has been known to them in some way, however nominally? 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says this, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord on that day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and marveled at among those who have believed. Mere casual knowledge, mere churchianity, mere member. Maybe you say, oh, I can pull out the membership card on that day and say, here it is, Lord, First Presbyterian Church. I belong for 45 years. And in effect, Jesus says, so what? I never knew you. I see no works of the gospel in you. I never knew you at all, he says in another place in the gospels. We've all been part of surprise parties for folks, either for a birthday or an anniversary or maybe retirement or something. And you know how we plan and plot and try to get the person there without them knowing what they're coming for. And maybe you succeed and the cat hasn't gotten out of the bag and, and everybody bursts out and says, surprise, you know, and, and the person really is surprised. Well, switch that scene into its negative side and think of the shocked, astounded, faces of men and women of earth who have laughed at the idea of the return of Christ whenever they've heard of such a thing. Oh, those crazy fanatic Christians who think a thing. How could such a thing ever happen? In Peter, they, 
Peter's letter, they, he says, there are people who say, why, everything has continued the same from the beginning of the world till now. Of course, they neglect the ideas of the great flood and the exodus and the coming of Christ and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and quite a few other things that haven't just continued the same from the beginning of the world till now. But they say, oh, that'll never happen. That will never happen. Picture their faces when they see Christ. There are places where the scripture says they will flee into caves in the hills and beg the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. In the older version of the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, the 1928 version, there's a prayer that says this. Lord, imprint on our hearts such a dread of thy judgments and such a grateful sense of thy goodness as might make us both afraid and ashamed to offend thee. And keep in our thoughts, I love this next phrase, a lively remembrance of that great day in which we must give account of words, deeds, and actions before him whom thou hast appointed as judge of the quick and the dead, thy son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Keep in our thoughts a lively remembrance of that great day. That's a good thing to pray for all of us. What we do with Christ today and tomorrow counts forever. Are we his disciples? Is there authentic evidence of it in our actions, our thinking, our speech, what we are found doing? Or do we simply live as materialists who have no idea that this great thing is coming? Well, thirdly, I've not mentioned an important sentence, an unusual sentence spoken in this passage by Jesus, who himself is the one who's coming, and it's verse 37. You know, I I was startled again. I, I knew it was there, but I was startled again when I came to study this passage to read verse 37 as he speaks about the rare delight awaiting those who wait for him. Here's what it says. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes I tell you the truth, he will dress himself for service and will have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Is that an amazing verse or what? What a splendid promise. It says he is coming and there will be a complete unexpected thing as he greets the people who have waited for him, who have lived to serve him, who have expected him and love him. He's going to come at an eternal banquet and serve them. That doesn't make any sense to our human standards, does it? The CEO of, of, uh, you know, whatever big company, Chevrolet or or General Motors or or what company you want to think of, does not come down and wait upon his employees. He doesn't call up, you know, the the guy who, who bolts on the brake assembly at the auto plant and say, can I come and paint your house for you? Can I come and serve dinner for you at your home? What? The chief executive officer? What is the point of this verse? What does this mean? It seems to me that it's telling us of what Christ has already done. In bowing himself as low as he could go and doing a work of service, taking on him the sins of men and women, and in that final day, You see, that wonderful service that he's already completed will be at its fruition. 
as he welcomes those whom he has served and given his salvation. I'm hardly even elaborating on the last word of this passage, but I need to mention Luke 12, 48, where he says, everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. Listen, this isn't talking about your money so much. I believe it's talking about the knowledge you have of Christ. The work of the gospel and and what is in you as, as a knowledge of what Christ has done. What are you doing with that? Are you living it out? Now, you know, some people say, well, pastor, I know you fellows have to preach about this subject, but I've heard people say to me, it's so fantastic. You know, how am I supposed to even imagine it? Well, my answer is, you're not. You know, it's one of those things greater than our imagination that God is going to do as he comes on the clouds and the dead in Christ rise and, and the earth is purged for creation of a new heaven and a new earth and all of this. It, it, it's fantastic. It's amazing. We can't picture it. It is not part of the everyday of our lives. And yet, It's God's promise and the result of it for those who believe in Christ, those whom he has served by his cross and given his salvation is a sure and secure result. Now, in spite of that, some people say, well, all right, I believe it's going to happen, but you know what? It's kind of scary. Well, yes, I would agree. All change is scary. And change on a a magnitude of this scale is really scary. I don't remember being scared before my first day of kindergarten because I don't remember my first day of kindergarten particularly, but I do remember my first day of high school. But In my time, high school started at 10th grade, so I'd been in junior high through 9th grade, and I thought, now, I remember walking up the sidewalk to the school and thinking, all those people there are smarter than me. They all wear better clothes than I wear. They're going to make fun of me. I won't fit in. I won't measure up. I was scared of high school. Guess what? I got through. I made it. Similarly, our wedding, you think of any new experience, you know, you say, oh, it's a little scary here. Well, let me tell you, any fear you have of the return of Christ as a believer in Christ is going to be swept away in the tidal wave of joy at what God accomplishes. And let me tell you this, Any fear you have as an unbeliever doesn't even begin to compare to the fear you should have of facing him without knowing him first. Are you ready for this? Ready or not, he's coming. I ask you today, do you have a peace in knowing Christ and having said, he's my Lord? Yes, I will welcome him, even if it means turning inside out everything that, that about, that's normal about this world and that my affections hold dear. I will welcome him because it means the great result that my salvation's been heading for. Let your hope in the coming of the Lord be like a lighted lamp. I've said this to you before as an illustration, but I remember when we had teenage and college-age sons in our house, and especially when they were in college, we took away the, the curfew that our sons had to be home at a particular hour. We were ready to say, all right, we trust you now. Get, just get home, that's all. Get home safe. And as my wife and I would go to bed at our normal hour, because we sure weren't going to wait up till whenever they might come in, we did one thing. We turned on the porch light 
Because when they drove up, we thought that was a message that said to them, you're expected, you're welcomed, thank the Lord, you're home. Keep the porch light lit for Christ. In lives of faith and prayer and worship and service and witness and faithfulness in your daily tasks, keep the porch light on because Christ is coming. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you renew this hope in us. We admit, we forget it, we set it aside, we're, we are skeptics toward it, but it's a great thing that you've promised you will do. We want to say from our hearts, come, Lord Jesus Christ, come to hearts that welcome you. Amen.